The following podcast is a live recording of a radio show first broadcast by Fresh FM with assistance from New Zealand On Air. Fresh FM is a community access media station based in Te Tauihu, the top of the South Island, New Zealand. If you or your group would like to know more about how you can have a program on our station, please contact us. Visit our website freshfm.net for our contact details. Welcome to For the Love of Wine on Fresh FM. I'm your host, Kirsten Rotsgaard. Today I'm joined by James Milton, founder, owner and winemaker at Milton Vineyards and Winery. Kia ora and a very warm welcome to you, James. Thank you for having me on your show. It's a real privilege. Thank you. Not a problem. So I have a different question to start out with this time. It's a big question, but a simple one. Why do you make wine, James? I could give a a couple of days to explain it but the short answer is when I was seven I wanted to grow vegetables and when I was 14 I wanted to grow fruits ferment fruits and when I was 21 I was learning about the wines from the artisans in Bordeaux in Germany and so wine has been with me since I was a very very young person Right. We'll get back to some of all those details in a minute. But James, in the modern New Zealand wine industry, you are already a legend, a mentor, Oof. and a role model for many. Together with your wife and business partner, Annie Milton, you established your winery in 84 on the east coast of the North Island, and it was New Zealand's first organic and biodynamic wine estate. Tell me the story behind setting up your business in Gisborne. Um, well, Kristen, it's, it's quite a long story. I was uh, uh, Annie and I were on the ages of twenty three, twenty four, and uh, we had just been spending time in Germany. And I was going to head back to Germany to go to wine school there. But Annie's father was a farmer of significance in Gisborne, and he was one of the first contract grape growers in that region, who first planted grapes in nineteen sixty nine when the wine industry started to expand into table wine more than uh, as they'd been doing with fortified wines. So he put in a vineyard, and when Annie and I came back to Gisborne, he suggested that we should look after the vineyard. And as a result of that, um, we did that for a couple of years, and then it was suggested that why don't we start making wine, and this was back in 1982, 83. And... of course, when you're young and you're excited and enthusiastic, you just want to get into it. And this was the ultimate opportunity that we could have. And yeah. so we said yes. And we got, and so we then started building a winery, which, in, interesting enough, was a insulated winery that therefore has not a very large environmental footprint in terms of heat exchange, which was quite new in those days. Mm-hmm. And Annie was a flight was a florist and she trained as a florist and her parents had a beautiful, beautiful gardens and so on. So she had dirt under her fingers, fingernails, and I had wine under my fingernails and together we, off we went. And the interesting thing is that if we were some of the first to be doing it organically and then biodynamically, then I think that we both had an intuitive response as to what it was we really wanted to do. We had seen the pollution and we'd seen the advent of chemicals, and also we had quite good, um, how do you say, we, we had quite a good palate. Yep. And back in those days, you could actually taste and smell some of these intrusions that was in the grapes and in the wine. 
and we just didn't like it. And, the, and, and when we then started off to do it without using some chemicals, of course, we were still pretty naive in that time. But Annie's mother said to us, why on earth do you want to do it in such an old-fashioned way? Because she had come from a scientific background and in the Second World War had been um, researching how to grow food more efficiently. And she couldn't understand why we didn't want to use herbicide or soluble fertilizers or mm-hmm. stuff like that. So um, that put us a little bit on our toes because we certainly had to prove to ourselves and anyone else that what we were doing wasn't, we weren't lunatics. We weren't doing it because we were just dreamers and young people. We were doing it to be really serious, to make the best glass of wine you could. Yeah, and that's what the what, what you've been pursuing, because you're regularly referred to as the country's father of the organic and biodynamic oh. farming practices, and you've received numerous awards for your wines and, and your leadership, etc. Now, can you elaborate a little bit more on these farming methods? What is it that's so unique about being organic and biodynamic? Okay, what's so unique about being organic and biodynamic? I'd have to start off by saying that a Coomera never speaks of his own sweetness. Okay. <laughs> and in that instance, we've been lucky and privileged and recognized and honored in various ways by various people for the work that we have done, um, both within the organic biodynamic industry and within the wine industry itself. And how do we say? We, when you think, uh, we, we are born with intuition and then we develop imagination from 7 to 14 and then from 14 to 21 we get inspired we go out and see things we listen to things we touch things we feel things we taste things and as a result of that we develop our own sense of taste and and sight and sound and smell and as a consequence of that when you actually stop and think about it and you get back into your imaginative sense imaginative time you then can see that not many people communicate with their grapevines, and I have to say now that this is 40 years or more, that you actually, when you're out in your vineyard pruning, you're just not sitting there cutting a grapevine next year to get the maximum crop. You're actually looking at the sap flow and how the vine is running and how the vine is growing and how the vine wishes to express itself by looking at the position of where the shoots are and what the tendrils look like and stuff like this. Mm-hmm. And so, therefore, you can see that we're looking at the harmony of the vine, and as a result of that, way down the other end is the harmony that comes into the wine. Instead of wine having just alcohol, acid, and pH, and, and, and sugar, and flavor compounds, we have this simple little thing that the wine actually has luminosity. Mm-hmm. So, invariably, when you tilt the glass onto the side, you can see a shine or a sheen in the wine, which is a encapsulation of the light process and grape growing. And the wine also has what we call linosity. In other words, this is a sensation that goes across your palate and it brings you a degree of satisfaction to such a point that you end up invariably, if you listen to people drinking wine or tasting food or when they get pleasure, they always go, hmm, like as in a, as in a sound of appreciation. Yeah. So that's part of the velocity as to how you are appreciating what's going on in the glass of wine. And 
and and the, the other thing is actually not many people stop and think about when it is that they start salivating having swallowed that glass of wine. In other words, when does your palate start reacting to that taste? So you can understand then that all these sensations are naturally formed and not through artificial yeast or, oh gosh, whatever else they use. Uh, it disguises the true value of that sense of taste and takes away the adventure mm-hmm. of that process. So I'm not sure I'm quite a ramble here, but the point about it is that I think that in this in this time we are looking now at at the biology of the wine, not the chemistry of the wine. In wine school and colleges, you get taught about the chemistry of the wine, but no, but there's not much. There was not much heat on the actual phenolic structure of the wine, and in that instance, that phenolic structure is a biological antioxidant. Mm-hmm. which is good for your blood, I believe. And I'd like someone to challenge us from the medical fraternity on that, but I think there's a, there's a whole lot of work that's been done on that. In moderation, though, I guess. Well, it's like anything, but, but you know, we have this funny word in this country called intoxication. You can't get intoxicated. Uh, we want to promote intoxication, but we have absolutely zero tolerance for drunkenness. Mm-hmm. And that intoxication is about food, music, laughter, dance, wine, song, being being overjoyed with, with what's going on around you and yeah. what's in your glass, yeah. you know? Intoxication is a lovely word. It's good Government stuff. Like it. James, be, being organic... Um Everybody knows that it's a pure product and, and no uh, pesticides and no chemicals, etc. are used. But then taking it to the next level, being biodynamic, I have had the conversation with other biodynamic wineries on my show, but I'd like to hear it from you. I mean, it's a lot of extra work and, and, and other layers to the whole process. Tell me, tell me a bit more about it. Well, of course, yes, that's a good question. And in this instance, the organic synopsis, we don't use herbicide and insecticide, systemic fungicide or chemical to get inside the sap of the plant, nor do we use soluble fertilizers that would otherwise be sucked directly by the roots into the plant without the plant even asking whether, without the plant even telling the practitioner whether they wanted it or not. Mm-hmm. From the biodynamic point of view, bio means life and dynamic means energy. And so we're looking at the life energy that is going on in the soil we have this little comment, and that is, you may think we're standing on dirt, but it's actually the rooftop of another kingdom. Mm-hmm. And so from biodynamics, you're looking at the life energy of the earth, the water, the air, and the light. And depending on what it is that we're growing, whether it's um, roots, leaves, fruits, or seeds, and depending whether it's winter, spring, summer, or autumn, we're looking at this rhythm of the dynamics. So in this instance, we're growing grapes, so we want to have quite small fruit and large pips. So we're wanting to accentuate the seeds as well as the fruit. We don't necessarily want to accentuate the leaves, unlike a sheep, a cattle farmer, sheep and cattle farmer who's growing grass. And then, of course, there's the rhythm of life and the rhythm of the cosmos and the position of the sun and the moon and the planets. And, you know... For many people, they're just little spots in the sky. Hello, there they are. Mm-hmm. In the last couple of years, I think there's been, with Matariki coming about, that's the most best thing that's ever happened in New Zealand. <laughs> with Matariki oh, coming good. about, then people are actually seeing 
that there is a celebration to be had coming out of the sky. And then we also have the thing, the supermoon. The last three months we've had supermoons. In other words, that's when the moon is full and when it is also closest to the Earth. Mm-hmm. And that means there's a big pull on the sap and the plant, the sap of the plants and also the fluids of the human beings. That's why at full moon you get lunatics <laughs> coming out. And crazy vines, maybe. Well, and no, the sap flows faster or else the potential for moisture in the air during the growing season, during the green season, the potential for moisture in the air at full moon and perigee, that's when it's closest to the earth, is at its highest point. You also just have to ask a psychiatric nurse or a policeman what it's like if that occurrence happens on a Friday night because yeah. they have to double their people. But in the plant situation, the sap is flowing more and more and the moisture is more and more. And as a consequence, this word disease can happen more and more. So many people would be spraying a chemical on to stop the disease. From a biodynamic point of view, we're looking at it in such a way that there's a platform on which biology can grow. And I think this is pretty cool. Biology can grow because of these lunar influences, because of the constellation influences, and because of the, where we are on the Earth at the present time. And as a result of that, if things can grow, then let's go and put a whole lot of good, good boys out there, good boys and girls out there, good fun guys and good fun girls out there, to take up the space that otherwise would be taken by a, what they call a disease. Mm-hmm. The tritus, mildew, yep. oidium, um, stuff like that. So we're trying to populate our leaf area and the ground and the air around it with good microorganisms. And this is where the rhythm of biodynamics comes into it. And as a result of that, we find ourselves farming ease and not fighting disease. Mm-hmm. And as a result of that, we look at, and this is the most craziest thing of all, many people say, oh, it must be challenging. You know, what challenges do you have to grow grapes like in Gisborne where the weather might, the climate might be like this or the something might be like that? And it really annoys me because this is such negative thinking, thinking that you have to focus on what the challenges are as opposed to a life energy point of view mm-hmm. where you look at what the opportunities are that Mother Nature is giving you. Such a positive vibe. Yeah, really positive. Now, how do... Um uh, buyers and consumers react to this organic and biodynamic uh, concept. Um, is it something that makes it easier for you to sell your wine these days? This this is a generational thing that's happening, and and I've been known to say that a colleague of ours in Paris, when I asked them about it would have been ten years ago, and I said, "Oh my golly, I, I believe that there is nineteen natural wine bars in Paris," and she said, "No, no, no, James, there's over two hundred and twenty." Well, that was like to seven years ago. When you look at the young people now aged between, as I said, 21 and 28 or 21 and 35, and the young people who are making wine, they're making all making a lot of these, a lot of natural wines, wines without anything added to it. And the consumers are really, especially in Europe and Japan and Australia, everywhere, are demanding wines that have got a little bit of, of a whole lot of somewhereness in them. So while 98% of the wine industry in New Zealand is made up of, no, I don't say no, 90% of the wine is made up in New Zealand of wines that have been filtered or they, and they have great, huge 
immense international market demand, there is this little segment of wines, as I said before about the biology of wines, mm-hmm. there's this little segment of wines that has a um, intrigue to the next generation of people. Not only wine, but you might notice that there's been a whole lot of more brands of gin coming out. Mm-hmm. And this seems to be, with the botanicals and the gin, and the flavors that come out of it, this seems to be a thing that is attracting or 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 exciting young younger consumers yeah and and um I often find that with wine from new zealand it it's not marketed hugely if it's organic it's it's a very subtle uh message and just kind of mentioned on the back label, whereas many other organic things are marketed, focusing totally on being organic why why this difference do you think? Oh my goodness me! That's a that's a that's a very topical and pointed question because uh, wine, a bottle of wine, is one of the few products that goes from the producer to the consumer in the same vessel mm-hmm. because it's a wine bottle with a label on it and it sits on a table and people can pick the bottle up and read the information that's given on it. So you would expect there to be a long soliloquy on the label about the joys of organic growing and so on and so forth that the consumers can react to, compared to, say, a lettuce or a carrot that is then prepared and put on the table. Mm-hmm. We then come into the present situation where we're at at the moment, especially in these last couple of years, is that um, political intervention in terms of trade and authentication of the wine from a certification point of view, the certification that we have here in New Zealand has got to be authenticated by the markets that we go into. In other words, it's got to be able to get through the gatekeepers. And this is where we have, just as an example, when the UK left the EU with Brexit, mm-hmm. then so did all of the standards that we had established to sell our wine into the UK. They changed as well. So we have to go through the whole format all over again. Oh, bugger. It's a yeah, well, it's a real bugger, I tell you, because it took time, it took money, and also being one of the first ones into that market, um, we were the sort of how do you say the guinea pigs to to see how the process went. Mm-hmm. Um, we get wines in New Zealand from Europe that are Demeter certified, which is the certification for biodynamic farming, or else uh, Biodivan or Eco. Uh, certification, so they're organic or biodynamically certified, mm-hmm. and they come into this country quite easily, as far as I'm aware. Whereas when for us to send it to the UK or the EU or something like that, we have got to go through this fine little hoop to make sure that the product was authenticated. So when you go and see a bottle of wine in New Zealand with a little BioGrow logo on the back, or the Demeter logo on the back, or the AgriSure logo on the back, you can be assured that the product is actually grown to a particular standard. You see other logos on the back label these days, you know, pregnancy warnings, and <laughs> yeah. also the Sustainable Wine Growers New Zealand has got their own logo too, which, you know, we're all trying to find a license plate for our for our um, product to get yeah. to market. I actually saw a quote uh, that you um, said a while back saying, one should always be skeptical of any wine that flies the organic flag too high as organics and biodynamics should be an honest working practice, not simply a tool for marketing. Do you Ooh. still stand by that quote? Did I, uh, did, I, did I eloquate that sort of word? I think you did. 
Crikey. Um, yes, well, I, it comes down to the fact that some people would want to um, put logos on their labels or marks or words or phrases on their labels as a marketing concept to try and get into the door of those masses of natural wine bars or even the organic sections in supermarkets. Um, some people could um, uh, want to impress the consumer by doing that, but in the end, if their intentions aren't sincere, then um, they won't carry on doing it because it is quite difficult. Yeah, in your in your own life, personal on a personal level, is everything you consume organic, be it wine or food, or do you make oh, exceptions? Oh gosh, you know, <laughs> um, uh, we may not be perfect, but parts of us are excellent. And in that instance, it's interesting because as you go on, you realize that food goes when you put food in your mouth, it goes both it goes two ways. First of all, it goes up and feeds your brain, which is quite extraordinary. And secondly, it goes down and feeds your physical body. And you just only have to eat organic food for a while to realize how much, I used the word intuition before, mm -hmm. to realize how much your intuitive responses become more focused and sharper. People might say, oh, you're just being a green, greeny opinion person. But actually, when it comes to appreciating uh, everything, you seem to have a sharper response. And I had to be kind of careful here, but you see these energy drinks that people, young people drink, and they got colors and stuff like that. Horrible them. stuff, in my opinion. Oh, goodness me. But you look at how they hang their head, and they are not sharp and alert and looking up and, and, and having a twinkle in their eye. They generally are wearing a hoodie, or they generally got their head bowed, or they're looking in their cell phone or got their music on. They're not in touch with the environment that's going on outside there. And I think that's a classic example of a beverage that actually takes away the life energy from the spirit of the person. Despite being marketed as an energy drink. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Yeah, well, anyway, we could go on about that subject, but I want to change the subject because I've done Good. around 50 for the Love of Wine shows now, and you have been mentioned very fondly many a time by other oh. winemakers around Aotearoa. And it oh, comes sorry. across that you have always been very helpful to others and known to share your knowledge. Well, um... um I guess you just want to share the love of the organic and biodynamic story because it's so important to you. Corporations have competition and control, particularly control. They want, they want to control everything. I think us organic biodynamic wine growers have diversity and collaboration because we're all really overjoyed and quite enthusiastic about what it is that we're doing and there's always a new discovery or a new opinion or something like that so if that involves sharing knowledge then I have to say that every piece of knowledge that you share <laughs> every piece of knowledge that you share you get about five more ideas back again from the mm. other person and if and you know if oh gosh if you are speaking to a group of people and they have their arms folded you realize that they're not receptive to what it is that is being put in front of them. Mm -hmm. So if that means giving advice out, well, why not? You know, because it's fun. It's all for the good of all. And if we have more organic wines out there and biodynamic wines out there, there's going to be greater um, availability to the consumer and therefore greater demand. Mm. And all the money in the world can't buy that. 
No. It's, it seems a general trait within the New Zealand wine industry that people really generally help each other, uh, whether you're organic or not. But there is a lot of camaraderie, even though basically people are competing with each other. But, but it seems a very pleasant environment to work in, generally speaking. Well, of course, it occupies the five senses. And out of that, you get people who are enthusiastic and, uh, and, and wanting to be part of it. But an interesting little question you could ask a wine maker, as opposed to what we call ourselves as wine growers. We're out in the vineyard now growing our wine for the coming season. An interesting question to a wine maker is to ask them what yeast they use. And you look at their forehead and see if they have a little frown because they don't want to tell you what yeast they use. Mm. And yet this yeast is the biggest goddamn disguise of the somewhereness that wine should have as a product of the land. Mm-hmm. You know, why do you want to go and put makeup on all over this product um, to make it smell good or what? Yeah, yeah. Let's look at your portfolio at Milton. In fact, you have several series or, or labels at, at Milton. So there's the classic, wonderful Milton wines that I know a little bit about. There's Crazy by Nature, there's Clou de Saint-Anne, and then there's Libiamo. Talk me through them all, please, James. Um, we were, yes, okay. So there's Milton. Um, back in the 70s and 80s, when one started a wine estate, you generally called it after yourselves, after your family name, as in Babbage or Nobelos or Collards or mm-hmm. so on. And so that seemed to be the way to do it. These days, you call it another funky name that is not right after your family. So therefore, Milton is there as our, how do you say, our premier crew or our... Uh, our um, Top of the line? Well, yeah, as our estate wines. Milton estate wines and they're all single vineyards they all come from a specific vineyard you could do a GPS search on it you can see exactly where those grapes come from mm-hmm. we have after spending years and years of being ridiculed and abused by the greater industry that we were nutters and we were lunatics and stuff like that I thought well I got a lot of you so we came up with this label called crazy by nature really you were ridiculed oh yes I, I mean by the this is in the Late, uh, in the 80s and stuff. Ah, so okay, back then, yeah. You know, it's a different I, story now, I think. I mean, the success you have managed to achieve is, is wonderful. So I think people have stopped ridiculing you a long time ago. Oh, uh, yeah, no, well, that's, that's is, this is the change that's happened within the generation. Yeah. But, and so, therefore, was a bit of a, if I could use this word on your show, a piss take mm-hmm. of the people who had ridiculed us that, of course, we are crazy by nature. Yeah. But isn't that just what this planet needs? Yeah. And it was also supposed to be our sort of entry-level wine, if you could call it that, whereby we could have a red wine and a white wine that was certified organic and had all the constellations on the label and looked very lunaticish that the <laughs> consumer could go and purchase off the supermarket shop. It turned out that the wines were a bit too good to be sold in the supermarket, so they got used as glass cores in restaurants. Mm-hmm. Then, of course, there's Annie, uh, my wife, who, without her, this whole enterprise wouldn't have started, and... In 1986, we came up with a wine called Clos de Saint-Anne. Clos is French for enclosure. Mm-hmm. In other words, coming from a single vineyard. De is of saint as a form of godliness or respect or saintliness. And Annie is Anne, is Annie, my wife. And even to the fact that on the back label, we would say that um, Clos de Saint-Anne is a tribute to my wife, Annie. Lovely. And I, and I would say, gosh, I don't see... And that was just a, an, an immediate sort of heartfelt gesture. And I don't see too many other wines out there 
on the market that are dedicated. Well, some special wines out there are dedicated to the particular principles or people or persons. So they are all closed with a cork, which is rather uh, debatable or talkable to stuff at the stage. But mm-hmm. there's a whole number of reasons why we use closed land as a cork. They're more for restaurants and dining rooms than they are for sidewalks and cafes. And so those are the three wines. And one could say, oh, my God, you've got far too many bottles of wine. But I was actually trying to cater for the different um, types of consumers that were coming into the organic market. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had some really good responses from some really important people who have drunk some really nice wines mm-hmm. in some very, very fancy restaurants. And, 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 and to a certain extent, these wines have been the Clotus and Anne wines. Right. We also had another lay, another brand, and that was called Amrita, and that was grape juice. And we haven't done it for the last couple of years because we had such a demand for wine, but it turned out that the, our mentors from the 80s and 90s were people who, in this instance, didn't uh, eat meat or they were vegetarians, but also they didn't drink alcohol. And one of them was a man, Mr. Peter Proctor, who was sort of like the guru of New Zealand Biomedical Association, and he spent a lot of time and energy going out there and instructing the likes of ourselves back in the early days. Mm-hmm. And when I said to Peter, oh, Peter, you know, it's a pity because you can't actually taste the fruits, of, you can't enjoy the fruits of our labours. And he said, well, just bottle grape juice, and then I can drink it. And mm-hmm. we did it. We waited a few years to get our techniques right. And then there was... Um, I could then go to Peter with a case of grape juice and say, do you ask it? Um, this is our intention. And, of course, the other person was a little Tibet, a wonderful, wonderful Tibetan Buddhist man who didn't drink alcohol as well. And so Amrita actually means nectar of God in Hindi. So that was pretty pointed. Yeah, and what about Libyamo? Ah, Libyamo, how could I forget that? My goodness me. So the 2013 came about and we were influenced by some wicked wine growers like uh, Radigon and Gravner and Floridori in the north of Italy and and Lapierre and, and Beaujolais. These are people who are making natural wines. So these are wines that are fermented on skins for an extended period of times. Invariably, they're white wines. Invariably, they encapsulate the taste of sweet, sour, salt and tannin and also umami. And they have a resonance of texture to them that really make people go, hmm, to the point that there are some generational people who just cannot get their head around these, what's called, what people call orange wines or natural wines. Mm-hmm. So Libiamo is a tribute to Verdi's opera, La Traviata, and it actually translates basically to Let's Drink. Hmm. when they're singing, making this performance on stage and they're waltzing around the place with, and full of joy and happiness. And so Libyamo was really about the fun and joy of this new evolution of wine where we've just got to get down together. Yeah, and so they are unfiltered, unfined and uncompromised, I guess. Yeah, yeah, well, as to the, as, as they have got a little bit of SO2 on them, I have to admit that, mm-hmm. only because uh, some of them cross the equator to go to the consumers in the Northern Hemisphere and there's some things that happen to wines when they cross the equator that we certainly do not want them to arrive in Japan or Paris um, in, a, in, a, in a state that is not excellent. 
So yeah. there is a little bit of ESO turnover. Yeah. How much of your production is actually for export? Uh, well, it's changed in the last couple of years with this jolly old COVID thing. Mm-hmm. And we used to be 50-50 export and domestic. Yep. And I think now, present day, I think we would be about 60-40 export. Okay. Maybe even more just due to the on-premise uh, sales in New Zealand. There's been a great increase in people wanting to stay at home and drink wine. Yeah through retail or else the export customers. Yeah, and, and we talked about your different labels or series of wine at the winery, but but what are your main grape varietals? What What, what is uh, it that you grow? We need well, to that's touch a really, on that. That's a really good question. Okay, so we have about 14 different varieties, and if we put it onto two hands, we have sweet, sour, salt, tannin, and umami. So for the sweet, we grow Riesling and make some sweeter style wines. And for the sour, or the acid, we have Chenin Blanc, for the salt, we have Viognier, and for the tannin, we have Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, and then for the umami, we then have Musket and Viognier again. Mm. And What's your own favourite? Oh, it depends on the time of the day, but I really, really, really love the, the twang and tingle of Chenin Blanc. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really like the soft saltiness and umami character of Viognier. So I don't have a particular favourite, but I think if being a left-handed burger, I just love growing Chenin Blanc because it grows nice and straight and in order and it makes wines that can be either um, dry, not so dry, a little bit sweet, quite sweet, very sweet, or sparkling. So it's a very diverse wine, particularly in this country where we're so 70% of the production is Sauvignon Blanc and nobody's looked at her beautiful cousin, mm-hmm. Chenin Blanc. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, so those are the different uh, sensations. And then you realize that on a guitar, there are six strings. And so if we're going to make a wine, you, you'll see a lot of wines coming out now called field blends, which is a blend of different varieties growing in the same field. And so when you have Viognier, then you have also, beside that, Roussan, Marsan, Vermentino, and Musket, to have five varieties coming into that one wine. Wow. Or else you have things like Chardonnay, Chenin Blanc, maybe Sauvignon Blanc, but we don't grow Sauvignon Blanc. Mm-hmm. But we're having more varieties to go in there. Or you have um, Malbec and Merlot and Syrah. And there's all these other varieties too. I just can't help myself. We've got to keep <laughs> planting great. different varieties. Yeah. But I, lo- I love, I love uh, pruning. I love drinking. I love raising Chenin Blanc. Yeah. Now, for many years, you've actually had a cellar door at the winery in Gisborne, but you recently made the decision to close it. Why is that? Uh, something that was not necessarily as part of that decision-making process, but I can see quite clearly that with this whole COVID situation, um, it was not um, very... Well, one can understand the reason why not from that point of view. From the other point of view is that we would want to have private tastings because we want to be able to talk our wine through with the customers. And we also needed that space to, to get more barrels in the, uh, the space. So closing it so that people could make an appointment or make a prior arrangement and they could come and have a tutored tasting. Oh, that's good to know that you can still come and enjoy a wonderful tasting at your premises. On that note, our time is sadly up. James Milton, thank you so much for coming on the show to share your stories with me and our listeners here on Fresh FM. Kirsten, it's been an absolute pleasure and thank you again very, very, very much for including me on the show and Not wish, a your, wish your glass overflows. <laughs> <laughs>
Thank you. Cheers. Bye. The podcast you just listened to was a live recording of a radio show, first broadcast on Fresh FM, the top of the South's community access media station, with support from New Zealand On Air. The funding of Access Media makes these podcasts possible. To find similar programs by other community access media stations, go online to accessmedia.nz.